Section 20 of The Heirloom This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle Section 20, Volume 2, Chapter 6 A Dream of Gold The night of his long, persistent, but fruitless pursuit had gone. The day had dawned, and it was in the fresh, bright coolness of the New York morning that Paul Nugis, in a weary, dispirited mood, sought to report himself to his chief. It was, as we know, near upon the hour of midnight when the long, stern chase began, for, as we said in the last chapter, just as the two, the watcher and the watched, lingered a minute near Trinity Church at the top of Wall Street and Broadway, the clocks of the Empire City were chiming the midnight hour. As we have hinted, too, in the previous chapter, Colonel Vander Mullen's domestic hearth lay some long way uptown. But the colonel, for the convenience of special work or special and unexpected emergencies such as this, had an arrangement whereby, with but little or no inconvenience to anyone, he could settle himself down in a smaller apartment or closet adjoining his little city office for the night. On the night of which we are writing, Colonel Vandermeulen's mind was too deeply absorbed and puzzled by the strange incident of the evening and too much exercised by his interview and his strange, mysterious interviewer, and too much interested in the result of Paul Nugis's shadowing to give much thought to his domestic hearth. Soon, therefore, after he had dispatched the little ferret man on his midnight hunt, not knowing how many hours, or for that matter, how many days, the latter might be absent, being at the same time most anxious to learn at the earliest moment its result, the perplexed detective unrolled and flattened out a roll of regulation-looking bedding, which was much after the look of that which we see used in convict prisons, and proceeded to settle himself in his downtown quarters for the night. Then at last, after another long spell of silent reflection, Colonel Vandermeulen partly undressed, stretched himself upon his hard regulation-looking bed. But it was not really to win repose. Hour after hour, his brain was active, unrestful, and in an unceasing whirl, thought after thought, conjecture after conjecture rushed through his mind, and the balm of sleep refused to close his eyes. He rolled and turned and tossed uneasily on his uncomfortable bed. His mental, and it seemed too his physical vision as well, was haunted by the almost ghost-like and unnatural figure of the tall, cloaked, pale-faced man. And with it, in alternation, there worked on his mind the strange, mysterious similarity between the visage of his visitor and that horrid picture which photography and art had so vividly and so realistically depicted as in death. As for Colonel Vandermeulen, he was a man of shrewd and practical mind, devoid of sentiment 
devoid of almost any faith as to any other world. And the doctrine and faith and spiritualism and ghostly visitations formed no part of his belief. Veteran as he was, he had been hardened and sharpened by many a knock and many a rub against a hard and biting world. Myths of spiritual manifestations were to him the mere phantom bogies of simple childhood. Even death itself was as nothing in his eyes. He would have faced without fear or trembling a whole regiment of ghosts, and in his campaigning nights and days, he had slept soundly when death lay scattered around him well nigh as plenteously as the withered autumnal leaves which the bleak north wind had scattered from the trees. Thus, that the dead could rise and present themselves bodily to the living was a thing quite outside his rational belief. That the photograph which he held of the dead was an exact delineation and likeness of the living, no manner of doubt either existed in his puzzled mind. As he thought it out, the whole circumstance exceeded his experience and was one that he could account for by none of nature's common ordinary laws. But at length, puzzled, wearied, perplexed by thoughts like these, Colonel Vandermeulen's eyes gradually closed, and sleep at last came to him in the vision of a golden dream. Yes, Colonel Vandermeulen slept. He dreamt that before his eyes, but ever beyond his reach, backward and forward, here and there, to and fro, there hung and dangled and swayed and swung an enormous bag of green backs and gold, American and English notes and gold, at which in his restless slumber the sleeper thought he grasped. But each time that he clutched, as he thought, the coveted treasure, away again it swung beyond his reach. Then, in some inexplicable way, in his perplexed imagination, in a way he could not comprehend, in a way as there comes to us in the chaotic visionary of a dream, his tall, dark visitant of the previous night was associated with the tantalizing nightmare of the bag of gold. Then another, whom Colonel Vandermeulen imagined in his dream, was the murdered man, but as he appeared in life, appeared before him. Yes, he saw with that vividness which the phantoms of sleep sometimes assume, the vision of the murdered man whose likeness, as in death, he had held in his hand. He saw him as in life, saw Bertram Gunnall. And then Colonel Vandermeulen awoke. It was the very early morning when the sleeper first unclosed his eyes. With an effort and a groan, he threw himself from his comfortless and unrestful bed. Then, from the lofty standpoint of his little window, he looked forth onto the outer world. Through the clear, unclouded ether, which hung over the broad bay of New York, the bright sunlight of the early morn was glancing and sparkling through the tossing waves of the emerald sea, 
while on either hand the far-off promontories of Staten Island and the opposing headlands and islands were thrown into apparently near and bold relief by the medium of the atmospheric rareness through which they were viewed. And over both land and sea there hung that bright, ethereal sheen which throws by comparison our beloved but misty fog-bound British Isles, as it were, into the shadow of another and darker world. Young as was the day, out upon the sea the marine world was alert and active with the movements of every shape and size and variety of seagoing craft. And both on land and sea, the New York world was busily and actively astir. New Yorkers generally are essentially types of that mythical creature, which is passed into old-world proverb known as the early bird. And the New York variety is perhaps impelled by a strong predilection for the earliest obtainable worm. Be that as it may, the feeling of the New York morning is such as especially to invite, nay, even, if I may use so strong a term, to entice mankind to early labor, and the cool, exhilarating intensity of freshness of the new world morning outshines and surpasses anything we experience or enjoy, a patudine freshness and beauty in the old. When Colonel Vandermeulen awoke and issued from the inner recesses of the tiny sanctum sanctorum within which he had passed the latter part of his night, or rather of the morning, and where with such scant success he had courted the sweet and soothing influences of repose, he found the little gray-coated ferret man Paul Nugas returned, and very humbly awaiting an audience at the earliest reappearance of his chief. Well, was the first word addressed interrogatively, and so full of meaning, put by the chief, to the little dried-up man. Ach! Mein Gott, mein Herr, that tam long son of a hound, him give me the go, the clean go. Such, as near as I can reproduce the mongrel polyglot, were the words in which Paul Nugas answered his chief. Then, in the same broken mongrel jargon, he went on to describe the course of his midnight shadowing, and its unsatisfactory result, which we already know. As the little German, or whatever he was, blundered through his narration in his odd mixture of tongues, Colonel Vandermeulen, and de Chabille, his arms folded, standing within arm's length, kept fixed on the funny, cringing, gray-coated little bit of a nobody, his stern, keen, searching eye. It was a look almost calculated to make the poor little dispirited man quake. Then, as the underling came to the sum total of his night's work, which, added up, came so very nearly to such a great conspicuous knot, the heavy hand of Vandermeulen swept round with a force which, much as a butcher fells a calf, would have brought the little man almost breathless and helpless to the ground. But it was not the first time that Paul Nugas had experienced the force of these violent evolutions in the temper of his chief. 
he foreknew what he would have to expect. And ducking his head, as we see sometimes boys act in their play, he fell suddenly to the ground in order to save himself from being felled. And if knocked, he might not have far to fall. We need not detail, but with poor Paul Nugas, that was not a happy day. Proceeding to the completion of his attire, but all the while pouring out upon the unhappy little man copiously of the vials of his wrath, Colonel Vandermeulen sallied forth, leaving his wretched little slave, for, if prohibited formally by law and abolished by act of Congress, the spirit of slavery, that is, the harsh dominion of the strong over the freedom of the weak, is not altogether extinct in the United States, in what we may call a happily contrite state, happily rid of his tormentor, but in his inner heart, devoutedly contrite and repentant, but his penitence lay mostly in the loss of his promised hundred dollars reward. The disappointed and angered detective, Vandermeulen, pursued his walk till he reached a large restaurant where, notwithstanding the early hour of the day, the rush of waiters and the clatter and clash of platters, plates, and pans, and the steam and odor of cooked viands strongly pervaded the air. For the predilection of the New Yorkers, as aforesaid, for the pursuit of the earliest worm, necessitates the devouration of an early repast and many restoratory establishments in New York City are open and ready at any hour in the 24 for the replenishment of the inner man and the entertainment of guests. Having performed this necessity satisfactorily enough, but withal in a cross-grained, perplexed, and ill-tempered mood, the colonel did what many a time and oft he had done before— he repaired again to Battery Park, sought a place under the shade of the trees from which his eyes could roam away on the rippling blue, and, lighting a cigar, sought again to explain to himself and disentangle the perplexity of his mind and to ponder in all its bearings over the strange mystery of the previous night. As he revolved the situation in his mind, there appeared in part in his waking mind a repetition of just that which had appeared to him in his previous night dream. For hither and thither, to and fro, there swayed and swung before the eye of his mind the enormous bag of English and American greenbacks and gold. There dangled before his mental vision those alluring, tempting words, five thousand pounds reward. Five thousand pounds reward, his eye saw, and the music seemed to ring and tingle in his ears to the tune of Five thousand pounds reward! Five thousand pounds reward! Thus he mused, and thus he had dreamed. Then once again the current of his musings changed, and under the light of day he essayed to unravel the mystery of the night. How many have done the same? With what different eyes do we regard our actions and surrounding when we look at them in the cool, calm light of morning 
to the view we took of them in the heated atmosphere of the night. How many crimes and follies would men stand guiltless of, for which they must now be adjudged, if instead of in the heated atmosphere of night, they had viewed their consequences in the cool, calm light of day? That morning, Colonel Vandermeulen's experience differed from what it usually was, for instead of becoming more enlightened, the episode of the night appeared to him only the more perplexing when viewed by the light of day, till finally, being unable to arrive at any other rational conclusion than that he was being befooled, utterly befooled, he waxed wroth. To an able man of Colonel Vandermeulen's temperament, not many things are more exasperating than the conviction that he has been befooled, been made the sport and dupe of some inferiorly endowed mind, and that, under extraordinary circumstances, for some inexplicable purpose, and in this mysterious manner, was the only thing which Colonel Vandermeulen could think. And yet, what conceivable object in thus deceiving or misleading him could they have who had placed and dangled thus the five thousand pounds reward so temptingly before his eyes? How that tempting bait had come in Colonel Vandermeulen's way at all, it is incumbent on us, for the reader's enlightenment, to explain. In one of the earlier chapters of this story, we had occasion to mention a visit by Bertram Gonault under Mr. Lumley's advice and under circumstances so painful that we need not recapitulate them to a small office or room in London in the immediate vicinity of Whitehall. Poor Bertram Gonault's visit to that small office, being at that time unproductive of any appreciable results, the episode was one on which we did not then enlarge or pursue, and which was allowed to drop out of our narrative. But present circumstances impel us to bring that tiny den and its tenant more fully and more immediately before the reader's view. And thus now we will explain. However dirty the work entrusted to them by confiding clients may sometimes be, However, by the black sheep of the profession, the obligation may be sometimes disregarded or infringed. It is a class and professional obligation, rigidly imposed upon the legal fraternity of England, that they appear in the eyes of the world with, we mean morally, clean hands. Even such highly respectable and reputable practitioners as Mr. Lumley who would have had no more thought of dishonoring or degrading his profession than he would have thought of diving into Hades, in the interests of clients, has sometimes not altogether clean-handed, we do not say disreputable, duties to perform, and perhaps for the performance of those duties by proxy, there exists a class of men, such as was Dr. Sirius Wells. It hath passed into proverb that the highest knowledge of mankind is man, while another equally sapient saw inculcates the equally sage admonition, Know thyself, 
O man. But however well he understood mankind, a complete knowledge and understanding of himself was a height of wisdom which Dr. Sirius Wells, the inhabitant of the little den near Whitehall, admitted that he never had attained. Even wherefore he had come to be called Dr., seemed like an unfathomable mystery in his own eyes, seeing that he knew as little of the art of healing sick humanity as he knew of divinity or music or common law, or almost any and every other of those polite sciences to which the honorable title of doctor is applied. Then why his godfathers and godmothers in his baptism had called him Sirius was another enigma in his eyes. Why hadn't they called him after a Rothschild or a Vanderbilt or some other eminently financial name or after some gold or silver or petroleum or copper or cotton king whom he could have made up to while on earth sooner than to have named him after that brilliant and stupendous luminary known as the Dog Star, which as it appeared nightly to him in the mouth of the constellation of Canis Major, was fine enough for all that he could think of it, but was situated an unlimited number of millions of miles away at some remote place in the heavens and quite beyond his reach. So argued sometimes to himself, Dr. Sirius Wells. But the freaks of our godfathers and godmothers at our baptisms just like the freaks of those who give us our nicknames in our early days and early life at school, are unaccountable and strange. And hence, perhaps, had the individual whom we have under review come to be called Dr. Sirius Wells. And this Dr. Sirius Wells, in doing certain work, such as it would have been infra dignitate, for the eminently respectable firm of Messrs. Wyndham and Lumley to have in their office or to personally perform, had been, in a certain sort of way, the intimate of Mr. Lumley for many a year. However much of an enigma Dr. Sirius Wells was to himself, however humble he might be, as often happens, he was not quite such a puzzle to some others who knew him. And Mr. Lumley, for one, saw him through and through, and beneath the unpretentious exterior, the sensible lawyer was quick to recognize the superior parts of the man. From the pinnacle of his loftily respectable legal standing and the exclusive halo of conservatism in which he lived and breathed, Mr. Lumley looked down upon Dr. Sirius Wells with something of the same magnanimous tolerance with which the great dog Monk probably looked down upon an inferior hound. Yet for all that, the self-important lawyer did not despise his usefulness, nor scruple when he needed to turn it to his own account. In pursuit of the inquiry into the mystery which surrounded the Vernwood tragedy, Mr. Lumley allowed the officials from Great Scotland Yard all the rope they could desire. He did not, however, at the same time fail, as he believed every theory yet suggested as to the murder to 
be at fault, to call into his own counsel in attempting some elucidation of the dark crime and its mystery, the good offices and shrewdness of his own familiar Dr. Sirius Wells. Not that he allowed the latter to obtrude his services, suggestions, or opinions to the degradation of the accomplished manhunters of the state. Intimate and familiar as he was, of course, the important London conveyancing solicitor, whose practice lay mostly in the transfer of broad acres, and whose extensive clientele was composed of the various gradations of the superior ten, and underneath, whose massive dining-room table might sometimes even be found the understandings of British peers. Of course he did not invite his useful familiar inside that almost princely appointed house, of which he was the tenant, in the very exclusive vicinity of Lancaster Gate. But for all that, there were a good many evenings when Mr. Lumley was supposed to be late, or later than should be, at that quiet, that is, quiet for the heart of London, office in Lincoln's Inn Fields. But when in reality he had quitted his office for hours, and the lawyer and his familiar were putting their heads quietly together after business time, in some quiet, out-of-the-way restaurant, in some out-of-the-way corner of town, in a privacy which all who know London ways know may be very private indeed. Poor young feller came from Merricky fuss, didn't he? said the doctor amusingly, towards the conclusion of a long consultation at one of these tete-a-tetes, and at which Mr. Lumley had stood a little dinner to sharpen his familiar's wits and to warm his familiar's heart. Yes, said Mr. Lumley, who was lounging back on a luxurious plush-covered divan seat, and the pale, sallow-faced lawyer held up in the line of vision between his eye and the gas light, a ruby-colored glass, through which he pensively and intently admired the beauteous tint of the ruby wine. Contrary to the condition of many imbibers, Mr. Lumley's white face looked as if a few additional glasses of the ruby beverage would have done him good. Well, there's a kind of kinsman of mine in pretty much the same line of business as ours in New York. As long as we can pick no top nor tail to this business here, no harm could be done as far as I see by sending particulars to him. Emphatically, no. Why didn't you tell me that before? responded the lawyer in an annoyed tone. Well, you see, I thought if there was any plum to be picked up out of this job, we might as well pick it as for it to go to Meriky, where they got too many plums already. Dr. Sirius Wells, though endowed with rather more, a good deal more, than one ordinary man's share of shrewdness, was plain and homely in dress, manner, and speech. For as too often happens, the empty-headed seek to attract admiration by an ostentatious external display, while humility and brains lodge together like bosom friends. And certainly rather than a man who knew and understood humanity in all its phases, frailties, and subtleties, you would have taken Dr. Sirius Wells, if you didn't know him, 
for some recent importation from an English agricultural shire enjoying a holiday in town. But beneath this homely guise, there lay an intelligence which verily it was futility itself to attempt to hoodwink or deceive. If you have connections in New York, Wells, enjoined the lawyer, dispatch thither every detail and don't delay a day. And thus it came that within fourteen days of that tete-a-tete of Mr. Lumley and Dr. Sirius Wells in the quiet corner of London, that, accompanied by the deliciously tempting author of five thousand pounds reward, very minute details of Bertram Gonald's death in all of its grim, mysterious surroundings, reached the office and were under the careful consideration of Dr. Sirius Wells's remote kinsman and correspondent, whose acquaintance we have made as Colonel Vandermeulen of Battery Park, New York. After due inquiry and mature thought, which had thus far proved fruitless of results, Colonel Vandermeulen rather reluctantly came to the conclusion that he must be prepared to sacrifice part of the honorarium which was offered to him, and, as we have already seen, call in the potent influences of that curious personal column of that far-reaching daily, the New York Herald, to his aid. The strange result of the powerful and tempting appeal which circulated through the American world was a result which had utterly surpassed the expectations of even the experienced private detective of New York. To those unacquainted with the American newspaper world, we may say it has achieved an advance in what we, almost with hesitation, call civilization, to which the old world is yet new, and the personal column of the New York Herald is a journalistic study through which the follies and foibles of poor, weak humanity seem to shine often with a funniness delegating the agonies expressed in some of our own national daily broadsheets into the shade. Thus, the potency of the press, the far-reaching influence of the instrument he had moved, Colonel Vandermeulen knew. He knew it well. But he never knew that the power of an advertisement in the New York Herald, with a handsome offer of reward attached thereto, could re-tempt from their graves the very murdered dead. End of section 20 Read by Paul Hampton